Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network and episode number 25 of the Beyond the Page podcast. And I'm not your regular host, Matt Lowell. This is Golf Course Industry Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano subbing for Matt this month, who is on a deep assignment. And joining us is the most candid columnist in the industry, our outside-the-ropes columnist, Tim Morgan. Tim is going to recap 2021 and look ahead to 2022 in only a way he can. But before we get going with Tim, we have an exciting announcement to make. CPRO has signed on as the 2022 sponsor of the Beyond the Page podcast. CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, Legacy, and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full line of products works harder to ensure your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com to learn more. Now on to our conversation with Tim. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. It's always awesome to speak with you, whether it's on air or off air. Uh, we're getting ready to end 2021 here. And the first thing I want to ask you, is golf a better game and industry now than it was two years ago? Well, before we get into that, Guy, let's be thankful for a good year. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Uh, I want to thank you, Golf Course Industry, and all our readers for supporting us and letting us do what we do. Well, I think it depends on how you define better. We're busier, and I, I do believe busy is good, but I see a lot of neglect from our new golfers, and uh, that may, may be the preempt to a column. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think we're better because we're busy, but we're not better because uh, the economy is in a little bit of flux. It's costing us more to maintain the golf course based on labor and supplies gasoline, oil, diesel, whatever we use. Um, so that may not be a good thing. But a good thing is we have, as the NGF said, we have a whole bunch more people playing for giving our sport a go, which is a good thing because I've always said golf. Golf is a niche sport. So if we can expose it to many, that's good. But when we have crowded golf courses, lack of maintenance, difficulty in finding labor, I don't know if we're better than we were two years ago. What are some areas of golf course maintenance in particular you're seeing be really affected by the surge in play? I think almost all aspects. I, I, I know everybody puts a premium on putting surfaces. Dr. Beard always said 50% of the game is on the putting greens. And, you know, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media things, there's always posts of everybody doing something to their putting greens. Uh, but the first part of the pandemic, when everybody was in a just a super panic and we couldn't touch this and we couldn't touch that, you know, we had bunker, you know, bunkers decline, ball marks decline, dividing was up, tart wear, traffic wear, et cetera, et cetera. To me, it's it's just the general etiquette of the game that results in the decline of the golf course conditioning, which is not the superintendent's fault; it's the people that are playing. I still think putting greens are maintained. We have an awful lot of smart people out there. Uh, not only on the research community, uh, but as golf course superintendents, consultants, USGA green section, et cetera, that provide a whole bunch of knowledge. And they're also trying to research better ways. But I just go to course after course, not the, not the exclusive ones, and have the big budget and can compensate by passing some of the expenses on to their members. But, you know, just your, your typical 18-hole golf course. Um, you know, that it's just getting out there and doing everything from proper agronomic programs, whether it's cultivation to polana control to weed control, et cetera, I think we're having a hard time getting out there because we can't get labor. And if we do get labor, you know, working on a golf course isn't easy. 
It's not fun work. I mean, you still got to show up today here in Hilton Head, even though it's 45 and raining and cold. You got to go out there and do something. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Etiquette used to be pretty straightforward in terms of course care. Uh, people like you and I have been playing for decades. Our fathers taught us a lot of that stuff. But what type of coordinated effort does it take with the superintendent, the pro, and other people at the club to get all these newbies to understand what has to be done to protect the golf course? And what are some communication strategies with that you've seen work over the years, Tim? Typical social media updates. Uh, there's a lot of clubs that will have an orientation program for, for new members, new golfers, that this is how you behave. This is what we'd like. You know, it's not what we expect anymore. This is what we're hoping for. We're not expecting, as you mentioned, when we were kids, this is how you did it or you didn't get on the golf course. There was no if, and buts, or about it. I mean, it was you, you treat the course uh, fair and leave it better than when you found it. But I think that's hard to do. And, and all if it, whether it's a GM meeting, a board meeting, uh, for new members at a, at a private equity club, or it's, it's uh, you know, newsletters, uh, signs in the golf shop at daily fee or municipalities. Uh, I think today's society is we don't like to be told what to do. We have our own personal freedoms, and we, you know, our tender sensibilities will be offended if someone tells us to repair that ball mark. Well, I think that's sad because, you know, it, it doesn't allow the person behind you to enjoy the same condition of the golf course that you enjoy. So just a decline in just overall human behavior, um, I find that it transfers over to the golf course and, and it puts the onus back on the ground staff to fix everybody's independence uh, when it comes to playing a golf course. I mean, I, you can go out just on a typical day at many courses and you'll see four or five divots right next to one another. Well, obviously, someone may be practicing or it might be a scramble event or something, but, you know, give me a break. Can we at least patch the divots? I mean, try. Just make an effort. Uh, and I don't see the effort in some instances. And that, that's discouraging. But that comes with the new player and the ability to educate that player. And that has to be a coordinated effort by all the go- You know, the five families, whether it's the USGA, the PGA, the Tour, GCSA, and, and, and the general managers, we all have to combine and sit down and try to make it a collective effort because sooner or later – you know, it's going to discourage people when you go back to your golf course day in and day out. And it's, it, it's overall conditioning is declining because we can't get to do programs because people complain that they've got to give up their, their right to play golf. And sometimes I hear and see superintendents take the divots and the ball marks personally. If you come across any superintendents that have good ways to compartmentalize mentally uh, what they can and can't control? Well, I think, that is the answer, what you just stated. You know, it's the old saying, let me get upset about things I can control, but what things I can't control, I really, you've got to just let it go. Um, it's a process. Uh, you, you know, I've, I've played with experienced and seasoned golfers that neglect picking up their tee or raking correctly the bunker or patching a divot correctly. It's, you know, we, we don't do the Raisin brand. And, you know, two scoops, we got to smooth it out. Think about those that are coming behind you and the cost of doing maintenance. The ball marks are just – I don't think people understand where their ball lands, and I don't think they understand the concept that if you can't find your mark, try to at least fix one or two others while you're, you know, you're standing around waiting to, you know, attempt that three-footer for bogey or double bogey. I mean, you know, do something. But I, I think professional staffs in many instances are reluctant to say anything because if you're dependent on a daily fee audience uh, or a municipal audience, you don't want to insult someone and they'll take their money and go somewhere else. 
I, I think the best sign that I ever saw was in a course in, in Texas, a uh, raven nest that said, be nice or go home. And, you know, I think that encompasses quite a bit. I, you've got to leave things better than you found them. Uh, speaking of nice, what are some of the positives you've noticed from the golf surge, uh, in particular with finances and some of the things that maybe clubs and facilities are able to do now that they weren't able to do a few years ago? What are some things you're seeing on that end with the influx of money coming into the game? Primarily infrastructure guy, whether it's renovation projects that have been put off, even something as simple as, and I don't mean simple and it's easy to do, but uh, just replacing sand in a bunker or doing a drainage project on an area of a fairway that's low, maybe a new tee, some tree work. You know, some of the extra finances are allowing you to get to projects that you haven't had before. Uh, irrigation systems, tree removal, cart path installation or repair, even something as upgrading a, a small segment of the clubhouse or the fitness center or doing something like that. Uh, mostly renovation. I see there's an awful lot of renovation work going on out there right now, which is a good thing. Um, you know, we, we don't need to build, I mean, we'd like to build more golf courses, but uh, maybe we'll start back again. It'll never be like it was in the 90s, but if we can continue to make upgrades to our, our product and our infrastructure of that product, it's the things that nobody sees, but when things, that, that wet area in the fairway goes away, you have fresh sand in the bunker, uh, all of a sudden there's sunlight coming to a green surface that never had it before. All those little things will add up to a better maintained and better conditioned golf course. Uh, you mentioned renovations. You wrote about uh, some in particular in your Grainies column to end 2021 here. How uh, innovative and cool are some of the renovations you've seen lately, and what, is, what has impressed you about some of that renovation work you've seen? Well, it, it is nice to see some imagination, a restoration of the old classics. Uh, I mean, Gil Hans has done a boatload. I think he's got probably 10 or 15 of the top 50 courses he's touched. Andrew Green has done some fabulous work, uh, you know, at Congressional and Inverness. Uh, his style is really bringing things back. You could really, one of my favorite golf courses is Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, and he's done a wonderful job. And then from a smart side, not so much from the, 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 the financially flush clubs, but, you know, making the golf course a little more fun to play, maybe a little easier for that new influx of golfer where we don't have 20 bunkers per hole when we really only need to have maybe four. <laughs> that type of thing where it, it, the enjoyment is better, it might make it a little easier to maintain, a little less costly. So the imagination of recapturing some lost features, it's kind of like all those home repair programs you see on the Discovery Channel, is, you know, restoring it and upgrading it so people can enjoy. Uh, but the, the infrastructure work, obviously the three things, you know, would be irrigation, drainage, you know, and bunker renovation. It, 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 people really don't get it, but when it's done and things are better, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Tim, you're in the boardrooms and the committee meetings talking to a lot of influential people. No need to give specifics here, but have those decision makers become a little more tolerant of tree removal and clearing as the years have gone by here? In my case, yes. It's always a tough, sensitive topic, and people get accustomed to. You play the same golf course from the same position day in and day out. You kind of you lose the trees in the forest. But when someone from an outside agency, again, you know, some of the smart minds we have out there from researchers and green section independent consultants that, that aren't there every day, when they can logically and agronomically and architecturally point out a flaw 
from a vertical hazard, I think people are starting to understand. And, you know, whether it's the simple thinning of turf on a putting surface to debris that's cast or a hazard or a liability, I think more and more people are starting to become uh, not sensitive but aware of what needs to be done on the golf course. And I can recall years ago, Dan Muresman, Philadelphia Cricket, I mean, he tracked financially every hour it took his staff just to pick up debris, you know, cast from a tree. And you start putting those numbers. You know, most members and golfers, they don't understand what we do, but they do understand numbers. And they do understand saving money and balancing a checkbook and paying bills. And Dan was really, really exquisite. And he's not alone. This this trend trickles down throughout our industry. When He point, pointed out the financial impact to the club and how much money was spent just you know, picking up leaves around four or five trees week after week after week when you could have removed that tree and saved X amount of dollars and put it to something more valuable to the club and the golf course. You know, I, I can remember years working with the USGA. You know, everybody harped on trees, every one of the green section agronomists, because it was for the benefit of the golf course to have healthy turf. And healthy turf is happy turf, and happy turf transmits to happy golfers. I don't see it. There's always the, the few greenies out there that'll that'll wrap their arms around the tree in a kumbaya moment and not want it cut down, but yet they turn around and complain about thin turf on the putting green. You're going to do that. That's the 10%. But I definitely see more and more people being open-minded to, to limiting some of the vegetation and making it highlight their golf course, not overcrowd their golf course. And, uh, you know, if it's a supplemental program, a lot of clubs, all right, we're going to cut a couple of trees downhill. We'll, we'll donate. If we're going to cut two trees down, we'll go donate five to the community around town so the, the ecological balance is, is, is made better. Uh, you know, it'll never change, but if you want quality, simple agronomics, you want quality putting or playing turf, you, you've got to have sunlight. You know, there's some stately trees. I don't fight losing battles. If someone says, what would you do here? All right, if, if this is a 200-year-old live oak in the, down here in the low country and I'm not going to tell somebody to cut it down, but if, if you don't want to cut it down, you can't grow grass on your green. Well, maybe you ought to move the green. I don't, but you know, people that those are isolated incidents. But overall, I see there's a there's definitely a uh, a willingness to to look at it. Um, and and I've been I was very worked with a very established gold classic course this year, and and I don't think anybody really had the courage to tell some of the legacy members that Mother Nature doesn't plant these these you know, pin oaks and triangle patterns. So this this was done by someone 50 years ago, and you, you can't turn around and complain to your superintendent that there's no grass here and there's root exposed and then there's dirt from cart pass and, and three or four trees block the original intent of the whole impact turf. They start to see it. And, okay, I, I, I've looked at it and said, okay, let, let's, life is a compromise. You take two of these down and see what you think, and then we'll come back, and if you see improvement, maybe we'll take the other two. Uh, unless the board is, is unilaterally in favor of removing trees and they need an outside agency to justify their opinion, then it makes it easy. So it, it is getting better. Can tree removal go too far, Tim, and ruin the character of a, a golf course if it's not done in the right places or too well, widespread? I, yeah. Yes, anything done haphazardly you know, is, is not going to be good. But I think you know, you can't be someone, I've seen it in our industry where someone has walked into clubs and I've, I've gone back and they say, you know what, guy, all these trees need to go. 
well, okay, this broad sweeping generalization. All these trees need to go. Well, you start adding up the cost, and, you know, you're spending someone else's money. Um, I, I get it. You know, maybe we all want that Oakmont or Inverness or Shinnecock look, and that's fine if that's what you want. That's the original intent of those golf courses. But just to walk in there and say they all have to go, I think it's it's a process, uh, and it's good for the golf course. It's just kind of a culling of the herd where you get some of that vegetation out there. But, but you can't make broad sweeping generalizations. And if you go too far, it, it depends on the character of the golf course. If there's if it's a northeastern, north central deciduous forest golf course where there's tree lining uh, fairways from the get go, well then maybe. You just got to evaluate hole by hole and remove some, but not all of them. It's a fine line. We saw some things happen in March of 2020 that we had never seen in our golfing careers. We saw pool noodles at the bottom of the cups. We saw bunkers without rakes. Uh, those things sort of gone away now. They're bunkers back in the rakes, and you don't see pool noodles too often, although I did see them at a course in uh, Mississippi a few weeks ago. One thing that I haven't seen go away as much as superintendents would like are single-rider golf carts. I was at a course in Louisiana where you saw four members riding four different carts down the fairway. If that's not going to go away, Tim, what are some uh, traffic mitigation and turf building strategies that that can help handle all that traffic from golf carts? Well, let's let's go back to the amenity issue. I think in the early stages when no one knew what was going on and, and we were having people get sick and die, I think people were taking extra precautions to allow people. Golf was a great respite for people to get out of that whole COVID syndrome and, and, and bubble and get outside and get some fresh air and move around and whatever it took and maybe if it was silly or not I, it didn't really bother me I'm seeing less and less of it on the course I belong to in New Jersey Fiddler's Elbow they don't have it anymore and our little place down here in Moss Creek in South Carolina uh, we don't have we have a little washer at the bottom of the flagstick if someone doesn't want to reach in and grab their golf ball. They can just, you know, give it the old hoist of the flight stick. I'm not really a fan of that because it can damage the the perimeter of the hole. But um, all those things are kind of going away because people are starting to get educated and understand the whole COVID thing a little bit better. Um, As far as the single cart, that's, that's an interesting question because I don't know in many instances is if, let's say you and I are members of the club, and it costs, if I, let's say I'm going to spring for the cart today, guy, you and I are going to play, we'll partner together, um, and we'll go off. And, and But why should you get charged? If you're going to get charged anyways, you might as well take your own cart. I, I don't know if that's in the best interest because that happened, you know, I, I can never understand. I guess that's a golf professional's way of making money for the club is, you know, double bill everybody. If I want a treat, why should you have to pay for the cart? But, uh, if you're going to get charged anyways, you might as well take your own cart and off we go. Uh, our club here in Hilton Head, we, we stopped the single cart stuff because it was causing a shortage and it was doing damage to the cart. The, the, uh, the wear and tear and the depreciation on our cart fleet was, it was going up and we're back to, uh, you know, two people in a cart and we, we kind of, uh, you know, asked for you to do that. And if you don't want to do it, it I guess you don't get to play, or if you could walk, take a trolley if you like to. Frankly, I'd like to see a trolley, but not everybody has the physical ability to walk for nine or 18 holes. Uh, the traffic patterns, 
I don't know. Everybody's trying something, but then you over rope, over stake your golf course, and that adds to your maintenance uh, issues. You know, if you're going to do 200 rounds of cart tra- carts a day, you know, with single riders, you're going to have traffic wear and damage. It's inevitable. So you have to weigh against the the incoming uh, the 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 income that you're going to get versus the cost of repairing the damage. Before we get back to this well candy conversation with Tim, a word from our new sponsor. Turf plant growth regulators are a critical tool in keeping golf courses in top-notch condition. They not only help to reduce clippings on warm and cool season grasses throughout the season, but they also help manage POA annua to enhance the overall turf quality and conditions of the course. CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, Legacy, and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full lineup of products work hard to ensure your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com to learn more. And now back to our conversation with the most consistently candid columnist in the golf industry. On to another topic you wrote about this year. Uh, Marion Hollins will be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame here in 2022. What overlooked golf figures should be next, Tim? Or figures? Well, in the Golf Hall of Fame, we, we've talked about it, Guy. We've written about it. Is the golf course superintendent. I, I truly don't understand. I mean, old Tom Morris, yeah, okay, I get it. Whenever he went in back in the 70s, and that's, you know, Morris and Honeyman, I get that. But why isn't a modern golf course superintendent that has, there's so many unbelievable candidates globally for a World Golf Hall of Fame, let alone a U.S. Golf Hall of Fame. Fortunately, some of the local and state golf associations are putting uh, people into, uh, I think Mark Hoban, if I'm not correct, went into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame. It's a slow, it's a slow process, but I can't understand where the PGA Tour doesn't and the USGA when they promote the golf course superintendent during their telecast. Why don't they get on board and do something to actually put a golf course superintendent in the World Golf Hall of Fame? At least someone that was born during my time on this planet. Yeah, you're not going to get an argument here. I mean, you and I have kicked this topic around uh, a lot, you know, without naming specific names. What type of superintendent do you think that needs to be? What type of quality should that person, the industry, advocates for to get into the World Golf Hall of Fame? What quality should that think, they have? I think we have to have the total package. Uh, everybody, you know, and, and I love Paul Latshaw. But you mentioned Golf Hall of Fame, and everybody says, we got to put Mr. Latch on the Hall of Fame. Well, no question. Undeniably true. He should go in there. But what is it based on? Is it based on Opens, Masters, PGA, and Tournament Golf, which is for a very, very minute audience? Or is it a superintendent that's a complete superintendent that is part of the GCSA, is an educating force, is maybe doing a great job with a lot less than some of the other superintendents have? that works tirelessly day in and day out and is a good mentor to young people getting into this business, is a good family person, et cetera, et cetera. Who is that individual and why isn't that person in the World Golf Hall of Fame? I mean, that's like saying that someone can't go into the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, if they didn't win any World Series. No, you know, Guy Cipriano didn't win a World Series, so why should he be in the Hall of Fame? Well, that's a limiting your, your audience. Uh, there's so many class guys out there that should be in as, and recognized not just in this country, but the UK, Australia, Asia, wherever wherever you want to go, there's there's going to be people. We, but we got to start 
somewhere. And again, it's up to the five families to do something. They've got to have a little sit down and get the espresso out and figure this stuff out because they, they got to put, it's, it's not like, you know, you have the old rules of golf. You should, you shall, or must. This isn't a should or a shall. This is a must. We must have someone in the golf hall of fame that's relative and recognizable by everybody that is in golf. And that would make a great first impression to go in to a world golf hall of fame. I mean, there's unlimited candidates out there. The RNA recently released a research report that the number of people playing golf in the world has eclipsed 66 million. Tam, as somebody that spent their entire life in the game, did you ever envision the sport becoming this popular, especially on a global scale? Well, as a young person, I didn't realize, you know, how global golf is because you didn't really get the coverage from a media perspective or a communication or a broadcasting perspective. You know, you would watch as a kid – I'd watch the Open Championship and go, wow, it's a weird-looking golf course, and it's windy. You know, I didn't really <laughs> get it. Uh, you know, there's, but I never, I always, frankly, I always thought as a, as a young person, I started my career at Myrtle Beach National, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, on, on, with the superintendent, Fred Mead, and I went from there to Pinehurst with Bob DePensier, and then went from Pinehurst to the TPC in Ponte Vedra. And every golf, those three golf courses were always crowded. So I always thought the golf the game was popular. I didn't think it was a big issue. And on, I started, as I morphed into my life and career, then you start seeing, okay, it, there's really not that many golfers. You know, and in a country of 300 million, we have maybe 20 to 25 million, depending on who's counting. But to have 66 million golfers globally, I think is phenomenal. I'd like to see that doubled, but maybe, you know, superintendents may, like, may not like to hear that. <laughs> But the more people that play, the better our game will be and the more we can do. Um, I always thought it was busy. I mean, I grew up in a small country club in Connecticut. and I was always busy. It was always played. I just thought the whole sport was always busy. But I saw those, that release the other day from the, the Royal and Ancient. And like to see it going into countries where golf is, you never really think about golf. That's what I think is cool. Um, and, and just seeing the participation, you, you know, you got to give the Augusta crowd credit for supporting, you know, the, the, the amateur they have in Asia, the, the amateur they have in, in the, uh, you know, South American, uh, part of the world. I think that's, that's outstanding. And the more we spread it around, the better it'll be. You hear some of these numbers. I mean, 66 million people are now playing golf globally. Uh, the rounds in the United States will probably be up 5% in 2021 compared to 2020 and 2020 was an awesome year. We're getting ready to re release our big January report and there's some encouraging numbers in there. Tim, how much opportunity is, is there for a young person uh, entering the golf industry right now, given some of the, the trends and surges that we're seeing? What part of the golf industry? Maintenance, especially when you think about all the uh, retiring superintendents. I know it's tough. It's not easy, but there, there's some encouraging signs, at least in my opinion, that, uh, now would be a good time for a young person to, to, to get into it. They should. It's a great profession. The problem they're going to have is they're not going to get paid well enough. And I don't understand. As a whole, our golf course superintendents don't get paid the way they should get paid. So how is a young person getting out of college? And let's say you have a, a huge you know, college loan to pay off. Coming to work as an assistant for thirty to fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars isn't going to get it done with the cost of living. The whole political atmosphere and how the society and everything is getting more and more expensive is going to deter people from trying to get into an industry that traditionally doesn't pay well. 
even for some of its best superintendents. Now, I don't know what the the average salary for the average salary. I think the last GCSA release was maybe the average superintendent has finally crested ninety thousand dollars as an annual base salary. I, I'm sorry, that's insulting. For the amount of work that's done and the dedication to the cause, the giving up of family and personal time and health and what have you, uh, you know, the more money the superintendent and their staff can get, the better. Now, as a, as a young person getting in this, and, yeah, I'm going to date myself. As a hundred years ago, I started with I started working for three dollars and seventy five cents an hour. That's irrelevant now, but at the you know, but I got into it because I enjoyed being on a golf course and the cost of living was was a lot cheaper. You can't put someone out of college into a major metropolitan area, the New York metro area, Chicago, L.A., and expect them to find a decent place to live, pay for gas that's five bucks an hour, and pay back a student loan for crying out loud. It's it's virtually impossible. Not at sixty to seventy thousand dollars. Not it's just not right. So that is a deterring factor. If you're a smart, intelligent young person that decided to get into agronomy. You know, compared to your buddy that might get into engineering, who you're as smart or even smarter than, that person may get out and start at eighty to hundred grand, and you're starting at thirty-five to fifty-five thousand. I just think it's it's tough. I would like to see more young people in the job. I'd like to see our universities, but there are now more assistant jobs available than there are turf students in all the universities in the country. Our annual survey, which I was typing the numbers in for today, and I'll give our listeners a, a preview here. Uh, indicated that 88% of United States golf courses were either profitable or broke even in 2021. That's by far the highest total in the more than a decade we've been doing the survey. What is it going to take for clubs and facilities to understand that it's important to invest more in the people, Tim? That's a hard one, Guy, because I've always stated, unless you've done the work, you have no idea how hard it is and what you're dealing with, when you're dealing with it, the fluctuation in weather, the scheduling, the, the long hours, et cetera, et cetera. People don't understand. For some reason, they can understand, oh, the general manager, boy, he was there till midnight last night, you know, doing whatever he or she does. The golf professionals, always in the golf shop, running carts. I'm sorry. That doesn't compare to the golf course superintendent because it's, it's draining physical labor over a large piece of property. I mean, you may have a golf shop that might be 4,000 square feet, you may have a 10,000-square-foot clubhouse. You go out on the golf course, you have 100 acres of, of property to take care of. It's 100 acres. And you may only have five people to do that. I, it's just no one understands. They just think it's the same old, same old that we're always going to face until we continue to drum it into people's brains. We're not just out there cutting grass. You know, we're out there making your life more pleasurable. And we should be paid accordingly. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if the GCSA is, is afraid to make that statement for political reasons or they, they can't be backed up from a liability perspective. Uh, is it the general managers are saying, you know, I'm going to be selfish and make more money for myself uh, because I'm the CEO of the golf course or whatever fancy schmancy title they want to put on their end of things. But you got a hundred anywhere from 50 to 250 acres to maintain and we don't get paid to do that well. Uh, education is one thing, but it, it, uh, you're, we're fighting the, uh, the uphill battle of people not knowing how hard the job is and how hard it is to do it correctly, environmentally sensitively, by the book, by the rules, treat people well, and, and basically be on call 
24-7. And to me, it seems like a no-brainer, and I know the golf industry doesn't quite work like this. Uh, courses are bringing in more money. There's staffing shortages in all industries. Why not reward those five people? But I guess the taking care of the 200 acres, but I guess the industry just quite isn't wired like that yet, Tim. I just, I just don't think they are. I, I, I really don't think they, you know, you can take the average golfer that looks at someone that's just a raking bunkers. You give them a mechanical uh, raking machine, send them out, and you see them sitting and spinning around in circles and maybe occasionally get out and pull the edges and, and you know, remove some tire tracks and move on to the next one. And they think, well, that's easy to do. Okay, let's go. Because I can remember, you know, the gratuitous volunteers from, uh, uh, you know, the Aligning Associations would come volunteer. They'd send someone out to volunteer at an, at an open. And we'd give them various, you know, chores to do. And they'd be, you know, after three hours of doing whatever it is, like, holy cow, I don't want to get up at four in the morning and do this. You just did it one time. I mean, yeah, it, it's not easy. I'd love to see it passed on to the, the grounds crew. Uh, but if you want talented people, it's just like anything. You're going to have to pay. You can't take our assistants, our training, people that are in training, assistant training, whatever you want to call even your established assistants, and not pay them well. They have bills and families, too. They like this industry. Why shouldn't they be financially rewarded for participating in it? And that's a shame on all the members and clubs that don't want to budget. I was working with a a club recently that had, even though their number one assistant who had been there 20 plus years and could, could easily run the golf course uh, with all the experience that that person had, after 21 years at a very high profile club was making $91,000 base salary. Are you kidding me? I mean, really? Where's the dedication and loyalty there? That individual's put 21 years at the same piece of property and has turned down better jobs because they like working there. The guy deserves a 50% increase, if not a 100% increase in pay. I mean, it's just that, that's where I don't see the logic in it. And, and I don't think people really truly understand. They just don't. They may want to, they may want to take that money for the staff and, oh, we're going to redo our fitness center or we're going to upgrade the lockers, uh, the men's and women's lockers for the pool. Really? Okay. Where's most of the money coming from? Why do people come to the club? Do they come for the fitness center and the pool? Probably not. They may be a social member because they know nothing about golf and they should be they should be assessed appropriately. But if you are a full blown member, you're coming to the club for the golf course, then a lot of your dues and some of that money's got to go to the staff that maintains the most enjoyable part of the property. And Tim, you and I understand this because we we see here a lot. I mean, there are thousands of golf courses in the United States where. There are four to eight people that work on the maintenance crew. They've been doing it for a long time. They enjoy doing it. But if clubs start losing those four to eight people, they're screwed. They are. Especially if you can go down the street for a couple bucks more. That's the thing. I mean, if, if you're just a standard, I mean, again, just a, a typical, in air quotes, a typical club that has $800,000 operating budget, and you have the golf course superintendent, maybe he does some, uh, equipment work, you have a technician and four or five people on the staff and you're producing a decent product and the club down the street decides to go from, let's say, for simple math, goes from $15 to $18. Well, why should I stick around no matter how many years I've been here? 
you know, I'm getting $3 more an hour. That's a lot to a lot of people. And all of a sudden, the club that doesn't want to pay is now up the creek without a paddle because now you got to find new labor in today's labor market that doesn't understand the difficulty of the work that you do. It means getting up at 5 in the morning and coming in on Saturday and Sunday and doing the job effectively and efficiently. That, that's going to put them right behind the eight ball. And then they got to pass the, pass the cost on to a consumer. And if you're a consumer base and you don't have a captive audience like an equity club, you're lost. I, I just, all these years, I'm I just so tired of the grounds staff getting kicked in the crotch. And when most of the work, in my opinion, is done on the golf course, which is the number one asset of most clubs in this country. I'm a big believer that uh, perhaps the biggest industry story in 2022 will be employee retention because of what we just talked about. Tim, do you feel like superintendents do enough that advocate and get those longtime employees the pay raises they deserve? Do you feel like this is somewhat on the superintendent to take numbers from magazines like Golf Course Industry and other publications and show them to their bosses and be a little bit more assertive about taking care of those people? I think many superintendents are assertive to a point. It's a fine line between being assertive and being annoying. Yep. Annoying to the board, annoying to the general manager. Because if you're a superintendent 45 and older, you're a mature superintendent. It's hard to push, push, push because, you know what, they may just say, you know what, guy, we've enjoyed your time here, but we're going to go a different direction and we're going to hire 10. And people don't want to lose their jobs because there's not a lot of jobs open. And there's a lot of compromise right now. So you can only push so far uh, before, you know, membership, boards, ownership, whomever, get tired. Because everybody's looking at everybody's always going to look at the bottom line. So there's a there's a break point when pushing becomes shoving to becomes tripping down the stairs, where you don't want to lose your job. You can fight as hard as you want, but there, you know, it can only go so far in many instances. Well, we'll have a lot more uh, in our January issue about this. Uh, we got some fascinating numbers, and uh, not to put too many plugs in here, but I strongly encourage everyone that's listening to read that and save these numbers and use them for comparison uh, when you're thinking about your operation compared to others in the same neighborhood or other parts of the country. So, Tim, I'll get you out of here on some lighter topics because we're not going to solve all the uh, hiring and retention challenges here on a a podcast. Uh, We saw some cool stuff in major championship golf in 2021. Uh, What was a more impactful victory to golf long-term, Hideki Matsuyama winning at Augusta National or Phil winning at Kiowa? And I know that's a loaded question because those were two hugely meaningful victories. Oh, baby. I I want to say, you know, I, I see where Augusta is becoming a trend center and trying to really uh, do what's right for the game. And I think that the whole thing, for me, summed it up as, the caddy took the flag off the flagstick on eight, on 18 and then bowed to the golf course. That's That was pretty pretty potent right there. Obviously, Phil winning a major at 50 was dramatic, and he didn't beat a slouch and, you know, four-time major champion Brooks Kepka, uh, which is pretty cool in its own right, but I'd have to give a toss to Hideki Matsuhamo. I thought, I thought Augusta uh, this year was really, really special. I think that meant a lot globally, which is, as you can see in the RNA, 66 million people. 
that was pretty cool to see, and the respect that the golf course and the event should be shown was shown. I think that was more dramatic than Phil giving the thumbs up, because as far as I'm concerned, that thumbs up may be on a Phil Mickelson piece of apparel for a marketing profit. So I don't know. I, I would go with, with Hideki at Augusta. Do you think we'll see a rival golf league to the PGA Tour uh, gain traction in 2022? Mm, I think that may fall away. By the way, like the WH, WHL and the uh, uh, the World Hockey Association, World Hockey League, and uh, the USFL. I just, you know, the tour, I think recently Monaghan granted players the opportunity to go over there and play for big, big money. Uh, it depends on how big the money is. Um, and it, 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 there's obviously more to it. Um, you know, if you've committed to a PGA tour event and then decide to back out uh, because you're an independent contractor and you can do what you want, there's a lot of sponsors that dump in a lot of money. And I, you know, I think you'll see it at Pebble Beach. You know, a lot of players might not want to go to Pebble Beach, even though AT&T is dumping a boatload of money in there because they don't want to play with me, the amateur, or you, the celebrity. They just want to go play golf for a lot of money. Um, it, that's going to, it's going to be interesting. You know, you've got good people behind, uh, that, that shoddy tour for lack of a better term that could make it really worth. But I, I think if they come up with a boatload of money, there's going to be a lot of players that jump. And if they do jump and they can, they can withstand the social media criticism for playing golf over there, uh, then it may take off. But if not, I think odds, if I was a betting man, I might say it would go the way of the World Hockey League back in the 70s. Does the fact that so much money is being dumped into professional golf from so many different places, does it, is that a positive for participatory golf and the people that work in golf, too? If it affects the majority, if it only affects the minority, then that's not good. The money that dumps in has to go for a lot of different things, whether it's education of the golfer, Growing the game globally, uh, doing research agronomically, uh, developing new technology—that that's when it's going to benefit anybody. I, I don't know if anybody wants to really dump a whole lot of money into just you and I going out there and playing the the local public golf course. I don't know if they're ready for that. I don't think people at that level, at the at the highest level up there in the clouds, really understand what goes down here when you put boots on the ground. They just don't get it yet. And that, that should be shame on them. Well, Tim, the only thing you saw me dump this year were some balls into the water at Harbortown <laughs> when, when we had a chance to meet up in March. Uh, for fun. Oh, it was a blast. And it was one of the, you know, to get a chance to do that, whether it was at Harbortown or the local municipal with you, who has done so many good things for so many people in the industry. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for all the great columns this year. And uh, we can't wait to read your work in 2022 and hopefully you and Karen have a wonderful holiday. Thank you very much. And likewise to you and Lindsay, and I appreciate everything you do. And, and again, Merry Christmas to everybody out there.